Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. This is Mo, the um, host of the Morrisable Podcast. And today I have someone who I met recently on another podcast. So shout out to Cho of the Africana Women's Podcast. Myself and this person who is a guest today, we were on a panel talking about education in Africa and um, the merits and demerits of studying abroad and the impact it has on Africa with the brain drain and all that kind of fancy stuff. And I loved what they were all about. And I asked them right away, hey, would you like to come on the podcast? And she was like, yes, I would love to. And the rest, as I say, is history. So who's she? She's a founder and CEO of Our Moon Education, which is a small charity working with very bright but financially disadvantaged young Zambians. Zambian is a country in, in Africa. She also serves on the executive committee of Hali Access Network, She's passionate, and when I say passionate, it kind of oozes every time she talks about her work. You can tell that she's really passionate about education and also creating equitable access to universities so that young Africans can fulfill their academic potential and become the change maker the continent needs. She lives in the UK, however, with her husband and her dog, Alfie, and she has three grown sons. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Miss Helen Lil Green to the podcast. Hi, Helen. Hi, Mo. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very, very happy to have you as well. So let's just start with the basic, you know, boring, not so boring <laughs> stuff. I know for those that are listening, probably rolling your eyes, probably going to ask that question, but it's very important to know how people got started you know on their mission so just tell us about a little bit more about you and um yeah okay so um I started off um I studied accountancy at university my undergraduate and I became an accountant I worked for PwC in consultancy for 15 years and then life just changed for me I had three young boys and they needed my time a bit more, but also my priorities started to change and my passions started to change. And so um, I did a little bit of volunteering and I went um, back to uni and studied for a master's in international development and education. And um, so I was a trustee of a, a charity in the UK that helped disadvantaged young people um, from com- from developing countries around the world and brought them here to do the IB and then helped them to access university. And my role, although as a trustee, I became a volunteer and I was helping them to access university places. One of my young students was Zambian and he said that he thought I could make more impact in Zambia. And um, mm. invited me to Zambia. I stayed with his with his family in a in one of the compounds or shanty towns in in Lusaka. Um, funny story is that the first night I was there, um, it was getting later, and I was thinking, I'm not sure where I'm going to be sleeping tonight, and nobody was <laughs> going to tell me either. And then in the end, I said, look, you know, where, where will I sleep? Where, where do I need to put my things? Um, and my choices were basically on, on the floor or in bed with his grandmother. So I shared a bed with his grandmother. And after Aww. four days, we became very close friends. <laughs> but 
Yes. Yes. It, it doesn't it doesn't get closer than that, literally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Do they give you their last name at the end of the trip? Just kidding. <laughs> um and that's how we got started. Justin, um my student, he um introduced me to a couple of NGOs and some schools and together we put on some workshops for teachers and students and came up with a very simple, very really, really tiny program um, to and by selecting two students and thinking that we could work with them. Um, that's probably enough to answer that question for now. Uh, <laughs> there's so much to tease out of that. I think the first thing that kind of um, picked my, I mean, everything you said was really good. Thanks for your response. But let me, walking back to what you said, and I think it's something that, we can draw as a lesson how you pivoted from being an accountant to like, you know, um, where you are right now. It came from volunteering, you know, pouring yourself in the service of others. I like the third guest mentioning that, mentioning that. And I I don't, I don't think we give volunteering enough credit that sometimes you might need that, not like selfishly. Right. But you never know. You just never Mm. know. Right. Yeah. I think I was at a, a pivotal stage in my life and I, I knew I wanted to do something different. I knew I wanted to do something in the education space. And I had an idea that it would be with foreign students in some way. I also took a course teaching English as a foreign language, a very, very short course, but I thought at least it will give me some skills. I had a lot of skills and expertise, but not necessarily the right ones. And I went my way into and I, I tried a number of different charities and while they were very good charities and doing commendable work, um, it took me a while to find the right one as well. So I think, you know, even if you do volunteering, it's not always the first one that, that um, hits the sweet spot. You might have to try a number of different charities to get to the right, the right place and to volunteer for the one that really means something to you. So what year was it that you went to Zambia? Oh, the first year was 2015. Uh, how many times have you been? Oh, I go um, twice a year for a month each time. Ooh, so I spend nice. a reasonable amount of time there. I'm not time there. Ha- have you picked up any of the languages? <sighs> Just odd words, to be honest. I f- what, the thing that's really difficult for me is that every time I master a few words in one language and think I'm making progress, then someone... Yeah. Oh, but you need to know it in Nyanja or you need to know it in Bemba or Tonga. Or our local, <laughs> local language where we are is Lenje. And yeah. and so it just becomes really difficult. So I feel I quite like language learning languages and I feel that I've really copped out of this one. But yeah. <laughs> so for me I find that sometimes it's the cost words you learn faster. Or <laughs> the explicit yeah. words, yeah. Anyways, um <laughs> Um, so Zambia, right? I mean, it's, it's a long way from where you grew up in the UK. Before you ever ventured into, you know, even traveling there, what was your perception about Africa as a whole or maybe even Zambia? And then on going there and interacting with people and your mission thus far, like, what are some, like, would you say your perception of it has been, you know, has it been like a, a match between what you thought? your imagination and your expectation. And if there are gaps in between then what was something that kind of blew your mind going in? Um, I know the experience you brought into this so far. 
I don't know if that question made sense. I feel like I was, I staggered a little bit about, okay. <laughs> yeah, very generous. Thank you. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I was lucky that I'd been working with a number of African students from Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Uganda. And I'd been working so with, uh, as a trustee and volunteer at this charity. Um, so I'd been there for about seven years altogether. And so I'd got to know their stories really well. Um, I knew a lot about their backgrounds. And I could envisage life as it was for them through through not only their stories, but from reading and um, some, but mainly novels rather than um, academic work and from um, films and things. So I had this picture, I did have a picture in mind. I think when I got there, it was the small, the small details that somehow shocked me. So things like the fact that People can't afford to buy salt for their meals. So they they buy them in these tiny little wrappers of paper, enough just for that meal. And that, that, that to me really helped me to understand how poor people are, that they wanted to provide, especially it was my first night wanting to provide the first meal and they had to go out and, and it was difficult for them to be able to afford that bit of salt to make the meal tasty. Like salt, like salt, like seasoning? Yes. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and I think that's wow. that's quite common. I mean, most when I came back to talk, talk to my students about it, they said, "Oh yes, we all do that." And it's the same with cooking oil. They'll go and buy buy from the shop just enough cooking oil for that meal. And I, oh wow, is that Zambia? Because I'm, I'm as an African, that's kind of mind blowing for me. I mean, I get like meats and you know other um, yeah. enhancements you put in food, but salt. I mean, it's it's shocking for me as an African. Oh. Actually. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those little details, I think. Um, yeah, I mm. think um, I was made very welcome um, everywhere I went, but sometimes that welcome could be a bit overwhelming. You know, people wanted to touch me and feel my skin and my hair and. Um, I know that um, a lot of Africans say that when they when they go to the West, especially if they've got an Afro, they hate it, that people yeah. want to touch their hair. But it's the same sort of thing, and you'd feel a bit crowded, overcrowded by people. And people coming up to yeah. me say, please, will you marry us? Yeah, yeah. realise somehow they felt that I, I could say save them and that wasn't that was definitely what what I was there to do um all right yeah all right so I mean the panel you and I were part of and I don't want to give too much away because you know Chulo I don't think as time of this recording has released that episode yet but you and I went um into deep lens about just education in the uh, on the continent as a whole and we both sit on different side of the spectrum. I being someone who studied in, in an African university before making my way over here and going to grad school in the U.S. And now I'm an educator in the U.S. But of course, you know, there's some similarities there in the sense that we have some form of, um, experiences with the, um, with the continent as a whole. What would you say are some of the, um, opportunities? Let's talk about the good part first, like the, the strength of, education in Africa that from your virtue of just um, 
exploring the part of the continent you've explored? What are some strengths that stand out to you in the people you've encountered? In education. I think yes. there's a lot more going on in, in education, in higher education than people imagine. Um, so in Zambia, I've been connected to a really interesting um, professor of physics and his wife, who's a senior lecturer of maths at University of Zambia. And um, he's very interested in solar power and has been researching not just solar power, but details about um, um, making batteries and all the components that go into making batteries. He's been quite instrumental in doing that within Zambia. His wife produces a lot of the data as a maths lecturer, um, the data that gives um, Zambia a voice in the climate change debate. And she's because Zambia doesn't have these supercomputers, she's linked with the University of Cape Town so that they process a lot of the data. This is my understanding. And um, and that gives Zambia a voice within that whole the whole climate change debates that are going on. And I find that really fascinating. And the fact that this this sort of you know leading edge work is is taking place. And there's so many people that have no idea that 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 happens. I think they've got a very um, negative view of education. I think also on the continent there are some very good universities. And some of our students um, go to universities such as um, Ashesi University in Ghana and United States International University, USIU, in Kenya. They're two small liberal arts-style universities, and they're absolutely amazing universities, and they produce very good students. And what I really like about them is they're... Most of the students that go there are African, um, but they're and and the students are taught leadership, ethical leadership skills while they're there, and how to problem solve some of the the, the challenges that they see around them in Africa. And I, I, so I really appreciate those sorts of education opportunities. And there is funding that goes with that, which really helps um, students access those those universities. Thank you. Thanks for highlighting that because I, I guess, I, I mean, I very much agree with you that we have so much manpower that has been harnessed, but we still have, there's a lot of opportunities to keep harnessing those manpower. Mm-hmm. And then also even talking about some of the um, universities and um, other um, educational, um, I guess the universities, highlighting some examples of the ones that you found out that have been very amazing. Mm-hmm. Now let's, let's, cause the next wave of conversation now is going to be focusing on your charity work. Mm-hmm. Um, your platform actually called Our Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll just, um, so I know with the Harley network, um, that you highlighted earlier on, it's probably like similar in the sense that you, you um you f- provide some form of assistance, right, to high achieving low income students to access international higher education opportunities. Now, for those who might be thinking that when you take people from, like, take for example, you have you identify this high you know achieving individual who is indigent, you know, needs some form of um support to be able to make it through university. You take them from there and you maybe send them abroad. They might not likely come back home. 
what would you say to the critic that says, oh, this is just another form of brain drain? How would you address that question? Um, when, when we select our students, we specifically look for students who have an interest in using their education to um, combat cha- the, some of the challenges that they see in their communities. Um, I think starting with that and working with them on those on those issues helps to keep that at the forefront of their minds, at least before they go to university. Our programme runs for 18 months to two years, depending on when they get they go to university. And the first year is full time on site with us. And they undertake a project where they um, they have to write a research paper on a global issue as they see it within Zambia and relate it to the, the sort of studies that they might want to do at university. So, again, that helps them to focus on, on problem solving and some of the challenges that they see and how they can be part of that community of change makers. What else do we do? Oh, yes. So we, we organise internships for the students before they go off to university. So this is in their second year with us. And they do three to four months with, um, at the moment, we're mainly with some of the accounting firms, including my alma mater, and um and also some NGOs that operate in Zambia. And the reason for doing that is to help them develop some work employability skills. So that's quite an important part of it. But it's also to help them understand that there are professional organisations that offer meaningful work and dignified work in Zambia. And I think especially because of the background our students come from, they don't, they've never seen that really before. And I think that's a really important thing to lay down as a foundation. It is safe to come back and there are opportunities when they come back. We will also help students while they're at university. If they've got a a summer that they've got free, for instance, we will help them to return and help them to get those internship opportunities as well. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, um, very much appreciated. Now, um, your organization again, Armon, um, what year was it started again? Was it 2017? 2015. 2015, sorry. I knew I was going to mess that up. How many, um, how many beneficiaries have you had so far? That's my first question. And of those people, um, how many of them have been, have, do you guys track them longitudinally to see the impact, like almost like the return on investments as far as investing back in the motherland? So um, so we started really small, if you remember. I said we had two students. Yes, 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 yes. We've yes. had about 40, 40 people now go through the, through that main programme. There are other people that we help along the way, but through the uh, Young Leaders programme, um, there are about 40 students. As you can imagine... Um, it's two years to do our program. They they go off to university. Um, that's six years. So we haven't had m- very many students graduate yet. Now, but we're we're coming up to a, a, a number that are graduating. Um, so I think one of the things that, um, in fact, it, it was one of my alums said to me, "What is my ideal?" trajectory for an Our Moon student, given that I want them to be contributing back. And I, it, 
it took me aback and it took me a while to really think of an answer. And it made me realise that I don't have an ideal trajectory for a student. I don't think that's fair to impose that on them. Um, One of our students that, um, one of our first students to graduate, um, she she's graduated in civil engineering from Edinburgh University and she's just been awarded the Rhodes Scholar scholarship to go and study university. And so she's going to do a PhD in civil engineering um, and she's looking at climate change and things around uh, that and how civil engineering can impact um, or reduce the impact of climate change, I should say. So, um, I feel that she is at least making a difference in the world in what she wants to study, and she does have the yeah. focus. Also, while she was at while she was at uni, she worked on a couple of proje- big projects. One was on water in in the Sahara, and the other one was on um, housing, cheap housing, um, but improved housing in Madagascar to reduce. Um, deaths and people losing their homes during cyclone season so so that you know when I hear stories like that about my students that's that's the sort of thing that makes me very happy Um, another student who he's at Cornell University and at the end of his first year he won the Davis project for peace prize and won ten thousand dollars to do a project in Zambia so even though he's only one year into his degree course, he's already doing it, making an impact. And what he did was he built a classroom and computer lab in a, a rural primary school and um, to make sure that much younger children are getting access to, to computers and technology. And that's, that's one of the things that he's really passionate about doing. And it was his first step towards that, making that impact. So... Yes, I do tra- track my students. I'm in touch with them both formally and informally. And uh, um, it makes me very, very happy when I hear those sorts of stories and things that they're doing. See. Now, um, do you know how many of them have been able to go back of those 40 students? To return home at the end of their yeah. degrees. Um, I should yeah. have that number off the top of my head. Um, yeah, it's just like an educated, no point in then an educated guess who would also yes. work. I think there's only about five that have graduated and three at home. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good. But as far as your program is concerned, because I know that um, long term, there's so many things they can use that for, right? Mm-hmm. And a life has been changed. But what, what, what does success look like? How do you guys, um, how do you operationalize to find a successful program versus a not, a successful outcome in a participant versus a not so successful outcome in a particular, in a particular person? Um, I suppose the students that, and alums that, um, that I see as being most successful are those that, that, that always think about what they're doing in relation to how they're improving things at home. Mm. A less Mm. successful outcome would be someone, I guess, who says, oh, I can go and work on Wall Street or in the city of London and and do a job for a while and earn earn a lot of money. I think that worries a little bit because once (laughs) it's quite difficult to to um to decide that you're not going to do that anymore 
Yeah. But I have okay. had alums from my previous organisation, so where I was a trustee, who have done that. They've worked, they've worked for two or three years and then decided, right, I'm going to go back to university first and bridge my journey back to, to my country. I see, I see. And most of the, how do you get funded as well? Because this, this is, as I, imagine, as I can imagine, is quite capital intensive. Where does your funding come from? Um, a, ver- a real variety of sources. Um, so oh. we, that's what I was working on today was uh, budget. budget <laughs> Fun stuff, huh? <laughs> um, so we do a variety of things. So we put on events. Um, and last week we had an event at the Zambia High Commission, which was really successful. It was a, a cocktail party, quite a smart event, but not overly posh. Um, and we had it was very much for fundraising. So we were we had mm. um, a raffle, an auction, and then people could give no- donations to buy bricks towards a building that we're putting up in Zambia so that that's one way we can do it and we've had um, both um, physical events and or also virtual events that we've done um, we go out to trusts and foundations to re- to apply for grants we have some individual donors who who donate money um, last week was or well, it ended Tuesday this week was the Big Give Christmas Challenge, which is a UK Christmas challenge that charities participate in where there's an opportunity for match funding. And so we um, we wrote to all our donors, for instance, and asked them if they would like to make a donation and have their donations matched. So um, we do those sorts of things. We have a few corporate relationships, which uh, partly for fundraising and partly for internship purposes. And we have some a, a very small number of regular donors, and that's an area that we hope to grow. Yeah. Well, I imagine that's like an ongoing, never-ending. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, doesn't sound fun, but you're doing it. You're doing it. Now, um, as an advocate for equal education access, which I think is very laudable, what is the mindset among the Africans you've encountered regarding this? Have you faced some resistance or are people, for the most part of it, embracing what you're doing? For uh, attending our programme? Yes, yeah, our yes. yeah. Um So we, we have a lot of applications and, um, mm. and we have an online portal and we ask people to write some essay questions. One of the barriers we have to start with is that the Zambian education system goes up to Zambian grade 12, but that's, if it was the equivalent in the UK, that would be to age 16. And there is no 16 to 18 years um, provision in Zambia. Um, mm. But the but the students think they finished school and are ready to go to university. And I don't feel that they're ready to go to university abroad. So some of them feel, well, why should I give up um, 18 months to study for some study and get involved in this program when I think I've already left school and I don't need to do anything else to study to get to university. So there's 
changing that mindset and saying, well, actually, there is that two year gap. And there's also a year yeah. to two years gap in Zambia where this, those same students do nothing. They don't they can't they're not uh, eligible to apply for, for loans for university until they've been um, out of school for some time. So fill that gap constructively and come and join our program is what I say. So that's the first the first thing. Um, but once once they get over that and they see that this, you know, that what we're helping them with is is not only to help them at university, but also beyond university, then I think mm. then, you know, then we're, we're fine. Um I don't think I don't think there are many other challenges in getting people to sign up for our program. Um, people don't don't pay it. Is we fully fund the program. We don't expect any contributions from our students because we know that they're from families that can't afford it. So we don't have there aren't financial barriers to attending our program. Um, and there are lots of upsides. We've got a hundred percent record of getting our students into universities around the world, including African universities. So we're not talking about mm. students. Not just abroad, or, yeah. Mm. Or not just overseas. But even in Africa, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems that it's been widely accepted, but you might run into some challenges that might be kind of like the difference you give with the schooling system in Zambia versus the UK. Mm. Um, how do you decide who goes to what university? Do the students make a preference I imagine if I was one feeling as a 16-year-old person or 17-year-old, I probably want to go abroad. How do you decide who stays in Africa and who, you know, gets sent abroad? Right. It's, it, it's not really my decision because the university uh, selects has so they to, have to apply uh, yeah, yeah. for their places. We don't provide funding and the universities have to admit them. So it's extremely competitive for them. Um, mm. So mm. the first thing is that um, I have lists of universities that can offer full financial aid and or scholarships and so the students don't apply to any universities where I don't think there's the chance of full aid so very few apply to the UK um, we've had some at Edinburgh University because they were funded by MasterCard and there was a specific program to do that um, but we don't um, we don't work with with UK universities at undergrad level. It's, it's different at, master, at master's level, and there are lots of opportunities at master's level. Okay. Um, so the first thing that we work is the timeline is that American universities open applications first. So most of our students will apply to some American universities, and they I limit them to six universities, and we work together with my list and they do some research and they and we look at the sorts of courses that they might want to study and then um, decide from there which ones they're going to apply to. They'll attend webinars from the universities. Um, I'll organise some talks from some of the universities. So there's different, different connections that they gain with those universities. Um, then the African universities and other universities they apply to tend to open after Christmas. So while they're waiting for their results from the American universities, they also then can be applying to African universities. And again, it depends on what they want to study, is which, which African universities. Okay. And there's a university in India where we have quite a few students and 
um, yeah. and one in Costa Rica as well. Um, but it's okay. what they want to study. Okay. Now, um, thanks, thanks for that, by the way. Um, thanks for making that clear that they have to be on supply and then you just, your role in that, in that sense is more like support. Now, um, for students who stay in African countries or travel abroad, I imagine they have different needs. And as someone who's, um, who studied abroad, I know that one big thing that, that I really needed while I was in grad school was access to mental health services. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of help me with coping and all that. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges of your students who make it to the other side of the ocean? And is that is that something your um, foundation is geared to like support or you just refer them to external sources? For example, mental health. You could have other unique um, challenges, but I just threw that out I there. think mental health is probably one of the biggest issues. And I think so... While they're on our program, we, we do have a couple of, um, of psychotherapists that offer counselling to our students. And they also talk in group sessions about the sort of work that they do. And we try to help students understand that it's not a sign of weakness to ask for that help. Um, because that, that is definitely something that, that most of our students, when they come to us, would find very difficult to talk about. So it is. We do talk a lot about mental health, and um, and those who need it can access a psychotherapist while they're on our program. Um, once they're at university, there are one or two that continue to be so- supported by our counsellors, but mostly the issues come up while they're at university, and and. It's quite difficult for us to understand what those issues are, but what we hope is that we've we've created a situation where they, that they will go out and ask for help within their universities. The American universities they go to are all um, do provide those that support service if they're asked, you know, if they go and ask for it, and other the other universities they go to as well. There are there's a lot of support for them. But they they do need to understand that they have to ask for it, and that that can be that can be difficult. I think one of the other big issues that our students face is being asked constantly for money to come for from home. There's an assumption that flat taxes, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that they're they're very well off because they're a student abroad, and of course, you know, they're students; they're not well off. They they usually have to work a campus job and various things to have enough money for themselves to make the most of their their opportunity there um so that's one of the challenges we do again we we talk to them about that and even when they're doing their internships in zambia i i prepare them for the fact that their parents will see that their families will see them earning money and expect them to be able to contribute um suddenly um, for to the family, and I try to get them to focus on doing just one thing. So when they're at university, if they can help to support one of their siblings or a cousin into university, uh, into university into into school, then or play for their uniforms or something to enable them to be in school, then that's great. They shouldn't ex- their family shouldn't expect more of them than that. Oh, and then. Another pressure is that they're under is to stay stay abroad. 
um, because they can continue to send more money home. So um, that's and that's even when students really want to come home and their parents don't get it. They say, why would you want to come back here? Um, so there are a few a few different different things that we we work with them on and try and try and help them. Um, okay. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Mental health is very, very important. And what you've described, I can very much relate to it. Like the pressure of whether to stay behind or go back home and, um, and the responsibilities that come with, you know, um, being abroad and those perceptions. Now, one of the things that I've seen, well, one of the, I guess, popular perceptions is how sometimes we go into volunteering or even trying to help to correct something without having an appreciation of the local context. In what way would you say your foundation has mm. been quite inclusive in learning a lot from Zambians as a way, as a form of continuous um, improvement or even quality control of your program to be sure that it's culturally sensitive to the needs or and it grows accordingly um, to the needs of Zambia? Um, that's that's a really good question. So I mentioned Justin um, right at the start of our and his call. grandmother, yes. And um, so <laughs> Justin, yes, um, and so um, so I, I guess it, most my answer revolves around Justin. So he um, he went off to study at UBC in Canada, and when he returned. He said that he he wanted to stay involved with Our Moon, and he works full time for Our Moon. Um, he he lives on site. He manages and runs the programs, and I am involved in in the programs as well, but very much as part of the tutor team. And um, and he leads what happens in in Zambia, and the areas that he he tutors the students in is all about um, being African, um, being proud of being African, what it means, you know, their identities. So he covers a lot of that that discussion and debate. Um, that wouldn't be appropriate for me to to have with them in the same way. In, in case I don't, think I don't know, um, so um, she's not Zambian um, by birth. <laughs> <laughs> no, from um, so um, so Justin. Justin's the really yeah. the person Found that keeps it. us mm-hmm. sort yeah. of true to being African, and he has very pan-African views. I wouldn't say he's um, got specifically Zambian views. He's very much a pan-African, um, and. Yeah, so that's that's really the main way that I would say that we we continue to yeah. learn and grow through through that. High access network is the other the other way that I um, I learn a lot from working with my colleagues through the highly access network. A lot of whom are African okay. and working with Africans. Thank you for answering that. Um, I had a follow-up to that, but I want to quickly ask this question if I did my follow-up. Are there plans in the future to perhaps ex- expand your program to other African countries? 
No, not really. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do in Zambia. And I think we're more likely to expand. We'd like to expand our student numbers, but also expand to other areas. I think there's a big need at various stages of people's education for for help and support. We get a, a lot of applicants who don't make the grade levels to do run up, to do our program, um, but would still be really good mm. community change makers. And we want to. support I think we would want to try and support those young people as well in some way okay. with a different sort of program. Um, and I think through, again, through the Harley Access Network, I try and I learn from the Harley Access Network, but I try and give to that as well, yeah. organization as well. And that's, and, and there are other organizations different from our moon, but with a similar objective of helping young people Cause access. Um, the follow-up question yeah. I had to that one on local context would be this. What would be your response to anyone who thinks, well, this is yet another white person trying to fix Africa's problems? Um, have you encountered a situation like this? If you did, um, how did you or how would you handle this if you haven't? Um I must, I must say I haven't specifically, and I'm not very aware of it as a, as a potential issue. So, um, so I'm very, I'm very aware of it. I think, um, my answer would come back to, to the fact that Justin's very involved in all the decisions we make about, about how we run the program. Um, and I think that's, that's just so fundamentally important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make decisions. I mean, there's so many things that I'll say to him, should we do this? And he'll say, don't be ridiculous. And um, and put me right very quickly. And that it that it wouldn't work or that it's yeah, it's not the right right thing to do. Um so I think having having someone like him is 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 really helpful. And I you know, we work we do work very well as as a team making those sorts of decisions. Um, so I think, yes, there are definitely people that might see me as sort of some white saviour, but at the end of the day, I think I've, I've satisfied myself that we're not working in that way. But I have had the discussion with my students because um, especially when we were starting out with our own site and expecting young people to come to us, I said, what, I asked them what it was that made their parents allow them to come without really knowing very think? much about us. And they said, oh, there was ah. a white involved. That's, a yeah. ter- <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> that, um, a white woman being involved be, be better than um, mm. someone else mm. being involved. And we've had, we've had that discussion Um but somehow that that seemed to legitimise it more, which I, I found quite sad. And so we, we, I try and have those open discussions with the students to to put them right and to show them that, you know, a certainly not all white people are people good. Are and, people, yeah, people and are they people know that anyway. Of, you know, um, we have good sides and bad sides, you know, yeah. across all board. <laughs> oh my! Having having just in there, um, running the programs because I couldn't do what I couldn't do anything that I do without. Okay, him well, shout out to Justin. It seems like he's like your 
the true north and one of the um important like the one of the important people that you have on board to kind of keep um almost like perfecting your hustle and making sure that you guys are doing it in a very culturally appropriate way So the last question I have for you, maybe second to the last to be, because you kind of alluded to the point, and so you inspired this question, by the way, um, will be about financial literacy. Now, because these students tend to be in, in the younger phase of your life, is financial literacy a part of your program? Because I imagine that, because as if I cast my mind back to when I was at, at that age, I probably have never seen that kind of money like that, you know, what they'll be earning after they graduate. So how do you... So they, might, they would definitely need to know how to handle money. So again, the question is, is financial literacy a part of your program? Um, I think it's it, <clears throat> it's an area that I want to improve on. And it's something that I'm planning to do more of in the next year. Um, we do, we teach the students a little bit about budgeting. At, you know, from the start of the program, they have to put a, a very small budget together to show how much their transport money will be to get to us. And, um, and you know, those sorts of small costs that they get used to budgeting and planning. Um, we teach that they, they learn to use Excel and how to how to put a more detailed budget together. And when they're doing their financial aid applications, they have to put budgets together. So I think that's that's sort of helping them get used to the idea of having income and what their expenses are against that income. And then mm. when they're going off to university, um, we talk to them about about how they how they will manage their money. Well, no, sorry, before university, their internships. We talk to them about how they will manage the money that they get from the internships. They're all yeah. paid internships. Um, some pay more than others, and how how are they going to manage that money? They need to give a little bit to their families, but they need to save some. The only thing that we ask the students to pay for um, is their passports, if they're mm. if they're sufficient money from their internships. So we that's one of the th- we like them to to do something, and that's one thing that they can do. Um, yeah. And so they have to budget so that they've got enough money for transport to get to the work. Um, yeah, yeah. A little bit for so um, so we try and start them off in a sort of gradual way like that, like that. Yeah, but yeah. I do think that um, it's something that I need to do more of about what happens when they get to university, and then if yeah. they if they get a, a well paid internship at, in their summer, for instance. And what do they do with that money? Yep. Considering that and then also with the black tax and I mean in that age of life, you just your priorities are so different. But how do you prepare them for the future? And if they intend to stay back or not stay back, they'll still need those um mm. um skills anyways. And by the way, shout out to Chulu. Chulu um was also very instrumental in getting some of these questions across to you. So because I reached out to her like, hey, you know, I'm talking to Helen and um, what's, some, what's some questions you would like for me to ask so I don't duplicate your own efforts on the podcast. Um, so you've been involved in Africa now for quite a while. And through your mission, I think it's something you, I can tell you're passionate about it. In those, and I imagine that it hasn't been a walk in the park. 
There are probably some low days and some high days. What keeps you going despite all of the challenges? I'm African and I know that sometimes we, we might not make some things very easy, you know, on ourselves or how much more on, on foreigners. But what keeps you going? Um, my students, they're just amazing. I've, I've got the best job in the world working with them. I, without a doubt, it's, it's, um, it's my students and, and the alumni. And I, I've learned so much from working with them and every, every student I work with, I learn more and, and that I find really, really rewarding. So that's, that keeps me going. That is so sweet, Helen. I just, I just wanted to mention that. Um, <laughs> finally, being, from your experience and expertise, what strategies do you think the Zambian government can implement to help the education sector thrive in Zambia? Um, so I think, I think there needs to be some whole scale revision of the curriculum to make it, um, more, about problem solving critical thinking and allowing students the the place the space to ask questions even even if they just did that small thing asking questions i think it would that would be really helpful you haven't said what we don't already i mean helen you just hit the you hit the nail on the head Right. Um, cause I, I think it was the minister of education in, in Ghana who, in, who made a similar point. And we know this, you know, we know, we know some of these challenges is that we were not helping our students think, you know, there's also that culture of fear. You know, you just identify your professors. You can't even challenge some thoughts because yeah. they take it as a personal attack on their, um, mm. on their brain and or whatnot. And yeah, that's, that's a very key one. That's a very, very key one. I think he says, um, we have trained the children. We just want them to write down what we tell them. At the end of the day, you say you're the best student the country has ever known, you know, like the curriculum, the curriculum needs to empower the African child to ask questions and to challenge the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I think also preparing them for the marketplace because a lot yeah. of our degrees are not translatable to the marketplace. So I think we still need that private public partnership going on. So yeah. employers are telling the universities how to kind of like, because universities should not be, um, I feel like they should be flexible in meeting yeah. the needs of, you know, like way back in the day, you know, philosophy was a huge thing and it's still very much a huge thing because you need to have some basic level of philosophy. But the way we've thought has changed overall to meet the demands of, um, the environment we're in. And I think Africa needs to, you know, you know, catch up along that, along, along that line. Um, uh, my country, Nigeria is also a key example of that. I schooled there and, it took a while for me to be able to adjust to the U- U.S. system where there's so much emphasis on your relative contribution, on your thought processes. And I found out that I was coming up short. Even though I was smart, I was coming up short. Yeah. And so thanks for that reminder, Helen, is what I'm trying to say. Finally, finally, are there some thoughts you'd like to add or point you, you feel like, oh, you know what, I should have said this or said that? And, um, or any thoughts you'd like to add as we're around about? I'd like to give you some moments to just, you know, um, say something additional things you'd like to say i feel i've been put on the spot and oh my goodness (laughs) you've you've done the hardest part of it and i'm like oh no i don't want you to feel anyway no i'm laughing about it because whenever my students are interviewed 
when I'm doing interview prep with them, I always say, make sure you've got questions up your sleeve at the end. Don't ever say I've got nothing else to say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, what else can I say? Um, I think, I think um, I see so much potential in in Zambia. I mean, I I only know Zambia, so I can't really comment on the other countries, but I'm sure it's similar in the other countries. There's so much potential and um and i think people just need to believe in themselves that they they're good enough and that that's one of the things that i think um it's um young people need to have that mindset that they can do it that they can make those changes that they they want to see and and they they need to be empowered to be able to to do that but they they can be that change um Yes, I see, and I see a lot of um, opportunities. Um, the new, newish now government in Zambia is making a lot of a lot of changes. I think that are very positive and um, going in the right direction to empowering young people, improving technology, improving opportunities like that. Um, so I think I think it's you know there's, there's a lot of positivity around a lot of very well um, qualified young people, um, both educated abroad and at home, and yeah, so they just need to harness that that potential. I don't know how that just made me tear up a little bit, maybe because of just how southern your voice is. But just how I don't know, but something just stayed up in me right now, and I I'm a bit emotional right here. Oh. And, I mean, your your passion in a good way, in a good way. I think it's a good reminder, you know. And um, thank you, thank you for just um, your passion and how that was replicated and even in your responses. Thank you for all you do through your foundation and um, for the many lives you know you've you've impacted by this. And, um, yeah, it's really just been a privilege, you know, hearing your story and um, learning more about what keeps you going. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mo. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I hope you had a, a pleasant experience. Is there any more ways you would, you know, like for us to support, maybe come back later on to talk about certain aspects of your foundation? Please let us know. I'll be more than happy to have you back. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. It's been really lovely having um, being on the show, being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And where can people find you? Um, do you want to talk about your your social media detail, uh, your digital footprint? Yes. Otherwise? Our website is www.ourmoon.org.uk. And um, we're on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. It's Our Moon Education. So Our Moon, O-U-R-M-O-O-N, Education. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as myself. Um, we, we also have an Our Moon account, but we're not so active on that. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, people can contact me on LinkedIn if they want to talk to me. That's the easiest channel. Well, guys, there you have it. Um, so go find them on there. And Helen, wishing you the very best. And I hope you have a lovely, lovely weekend ahead. Thank you so much. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Then. Bye. <laughs> Well, everyone, that was the episode. I hope you learned a lot from it because I did too. And if there are more ways you like for us to support you on the podcast or 
you'd like to come on board, don't hesitate to check our website, www.monsible.com. And on behalf of everyone on the show, thank you so much for listening. Catch you guys on another episode of the Monsible Podcast. Remain your host, Monsible. Bye for now. Bye.